Live from the heartland and the crossroads of America, it's Tony Katz today. So I thought it was pretty important to take today and kind of break down all the different components that are going to go into the State of the Union tonight. Because this State of the Union now falls under a very, very unique backdrop. It falls under an economic backdrop. It falls under a national security backdrop. It falls under the standard political backdrop. And it falls under a series of conversations about Vice President Kamala Harris being, well, incompetent because she is. Democrats again and again saying, what has this woman done? And now she's going to sit there behind President Biden, dreaming of the day that she's president, a day, according to Democrats, that is never, ever, ever going to come. Tony Katz, Tony Katz today. Good to be with you. Find everything, TonyKatz.Locals.com. TonyKatz.Locals.com. I also uh, forgot that this comes in the backdrop of a scandal regarding classified documents. And you'll note how the classified documents of Donald Trump and the classified documents of Mike Pence, which I'm angry about. I've said this. I've been clear. I don't know why so many people have classified documents. The whole thing doesn't make any sense. It's nuts. Either we have a serious problem in the overclassification of documents, which I believe to be true, because uh, the the intelligence world classifies everything because they don't want you and I to know. It's done because they get to prove how important their their work is in the intelligence community, and it's done to keep us from having access to things. It's kind of crazy. But the, the scandal is with Biden because these are documents that were not only, well, wrongly had from his time as vice president, how about from his time in the U.S. Senate? And then it goes to the idea of how many people may have had access to them. Documents at the UPenn Biden Center, he claims, in a locked closet. Locked by what? Trump's documents were locked by the Secret Service. And then the documents in his home where there was access to them by Hunter Biden. And Hunter Biden is a shady individual. And Hunter Biden was thought by the Obama administration to be a shady individual. And they were worried about Biden and his uh, dealings with Hunter and Hunter's dealings with places like Ukraine. The board of Burisma, for example, other things uh, going later on down the road. There was no faith. There was no trust. Everybody knew that Hunter was a shady guy with a shady history, with no actual skill set whatsoever. And now you've got Hunter with these dealings with Ukraine and with China with a drug problem that the world knows about being quarantined in the house in Delaware where these classified documents were just hanging about, classified documents that may have had dealings with Ukraine and China. And we don't have access to logs somehow, mysteriously, the Secret Service doesn't keep a list of who visits Biden when he's at his home. So he gets to have all these meetings in absolute secrecy, kept away from we the people. Well, it's about national security. No, 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 no. Again, just like the classified documents, it's about keeping us. It's about keeping us out of the conversation. 
It's about keeping us away from data and information, away from facts, away from their dealings. Who did Hunter Biden have over to the House? How was he connected to those people? And what did they then have access to? And how many people paid? That's right. Paid for access. I don't know, maybe bought Hunter Biden dinner. Maybe paid for a couple of flights. Maybe paid for some legal work. The man has legal issues between uh, his own uh, financial, his own uh, drug uh, issues, and of course, having children out of wedlock that he doesn't even recognize, neither does his father, the president, by the way. These are all things that equate to a scandal. But that got pushed a little bit to the back burner because of the freaking balloon. Oh, you remember the balloon, don't you? The balloon and the national security implications of shooting something down when it's now known uh, on two different levels. Number one, you could have shot this thing down over Alaska, over water. You could have, and you could have shot it down over the state of Montana, and you chose not to. Oh, no, wait, Biden wanted to. (laughs) And it was the military. I was like, yeah, we're not listening to this old man. And they chose not to. And if it was, as I've been discussing, if it was that Wednesday, this was on a Wednesday, when he said, he, that's when he said, let's shoot it down. But they knew about this balloon days before. Was the president made aware of it days before? There's a lot here, a tremendous amount here. And this is the backdrop for the State of the Union, where Joe Biden's going to walk in and tell you that everything is just great. The economy is great and we've got jobs. Everything's wonderful. Oh, it's just a dream come true because of my financial plan. That's not the case. Well, Republicans are already laying out their case. And they and they gathered, had their House Republican agenda meeting and they're like, "We're going to we're going to set down what we think is going on." Tonight in his State of the Union, Joe Biden must answer for his failed leadership. Whether it's the border crisis continuing to rage at our southern border, crushing inflation and over $30 trillion in national debt, or a balloon from communist China entering into the United States sovereign airspace, Joe Biden has caused a crisis in America. This is why Americans spoke clearly in November. Our families cannot afford Joe Biden's failed far-left Democrat policies. In the new House Republican majority, we have already hit the ground running, working on behalf of the American people to provide critical checks and oversight on the Biden administration and deliver on our legislative agenda, the commitment to America, an economy that's strong, a nation that's safe, a future that's built on freedom, and a government that's accountable. In just the first few weeks, we have reopened the People's House, defended America's energy security, protected the sanctity of life, defunded Joe Biden's IRS army, ended Joe Biden's COVID-19 power grab, and established select committees to address the Chinese Communist Party's malign influence and the weaponization of the federal government. As Joe Biden makes our nation less safe with his 
failed far-left policies, I am honored to highlight the important work of our upstate New York law enforcement by inviting Montgomery County Sheriff Jeff Smith as my State of the Union guest this evening. So that's Representative Elise Stefanik. And, and they go through basically this laundry list. you got to understand she's, she's flanked by, uh, it seems like half the Republicans in the House here. Uh, and to, to engage this idea that, well, if Biden thinks he's delivering well, you're just wrong. And so one by one, Republicans got up to say, hey, here's what's happening. Crisis in communities like mine as a result of this administration's weak border policies. Since Joe Biden took office, we've had over 5 million illegal crossings. There is nothing compassionate about weak border policies. They fuel human trafficking by incentivizing millions of migrants to risk their lives in dangerous journeys to our beautiful country. President Biden's failed border policy is not just a humanitarian crisis. It is a public safety threat as well. Yeah, I forgot to mention the border, didn't I? The border's a story. Of course it is. And the border is, is the failure of both parties. We, we know this. The border is a failure of both parties to engage the basic conversation. Nations have borders and we have a right to protect and defend it. No one simply has the right to be an American, though we should absolutely want to further legal immigration in the U.S. But we're allowed to ask who you are. We're allowed to ask, what are you all about? And we're allowed to state that we want people who are a part of, who want to be a part of the American fabric, not tear it asunder. I've been a proponent for a long time now of putting an end to the NGOs, non-governmental organizations, and the groups that go to the border and teach people how to lie, claim refugee status when they're not refugees, they're migrants who want to push for the idea, well, we have to pay for everything. No, we do not. Now, if you as a group want to go raise money and pay for people, you feel free. You can feel free. You can do what you will. But to send organizations there that teach people to lie day in and day out, day in and day out, I mean, how is this not the crime? This is this it's certainly an affront. We could at least argue that this is clearly an affront. Republicans spent a lot of time trying to get ahead of this speech, ahead of the State of the Union. And you even had Kevin McCarthy uh, discussing the, the debt limit. You know, look, you, you can't you can't default. We, we have the full faith and credit matters, and we're prepared to work with the president. The purpose of that pre-buttle, as it's described. The purpose of that statement right there, because people be like, oh, man, he's caving. No. What he's doing is eliminating the argument from Joe Biden's speech with only a half a day to go. Forcing the Biden team to have to engage in some rewrites of saying, look at what the Republicans are doing, playing chicken with the debt limit. What was that? It was Corinne Jean-Pierre who was saying that? Playing chicken with the debt limit and, and all that jazz. You can't because the debt limit is coming up. Notice that we're spending too much. Of course we should be engaged in the conversation. We are spending too much. That's huge. And I think that's going to be part of the rebuttal that comes from Arkansas Governor Sarah Huckabee Sanders, who was an inspired choice to engage the rebuttal. 
because, A, people certainly associate her with the Trump days, the only actual press secretary. Well, I shouldn't say that because it's Kelly McEnany, right? In the, in the middle, that Stephanie Grisham era did, didn't so much. They, they don't look at Sean Spicer. Right? They're like, I don't know what's going on here. Let's let's forget. Sean, Sean, there's a job for you at Newsmax. Knock it out. And I have I have interviewed Sean a couple times. Sean's a nice dude. And the whole conversation, he used to do comms at the RNC, Republican National Committee, and I never heard anything but a good thing about the work Sean Spicer did over there. Re- absolutely nothing but good things from Sean, about Sean Spicer, from his work there. Then he got to the White House and he kind of, he kind of kind of screwed himself he didn't have to do it he could have been strong without being nutty that's the only way to describe it but it's sarah huckabee sanders who you remember because she handled that press well she handled it clearly she handled it with focus she handled it with a plum and she wasn't afraid of the press she took the press on and she took them on well aggressively without fear Put them in their place and answered questions, which you don't get from Corinne Jean-Pierre, the amount of reading off of the damn binder. Kaylee McEnany had a huge binder. She didn't read directly from it at every single turn. She was able to answer questions. She was able to engage with the press. Jen Psaki, I found to be very, very demeaning as press secretary, but she did answer the questions. After she got through the whole circle back world, Right, got her sea legs under her. She answered questions. She engaged. You don't get that from Corinne Jean-Pierre at all or in any way. So Sarah Huckabee Sanders, great choice to give the rebuttal. Now, now my plan, I, originally I was like, hey, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to live stream my response to the State of the Union. I'm going to do it. And then I'm like, oh, man, I don't, I don't know. I, I, I mean, I, I want to comment and I want to share it, but like, don't I just... I think I just want to watch this one and then, and then you know, gather my notes and then give proper comment to it later. That's, that's the way I'd like to do it. I think that's the way I'm going to. I mean, I could be convinced, but I don't. I think I'm just going to watch. Cigar in one hand, bourbon in another, and just take it all in and take my notes. And then maybe, I don't know, maybe I'll do some, some live streaming afterwards kind of break it down, those those first thoughts. And, of course, I'll have everything here tomorrow. Every last bit of it tomorrow. Jim Jordan had some things to say, Republican congressman from Ohio. On the Judiciary Committee, in fact, one of them is testifying in a transcribed interview as we speak, uh, talking about how the Justice Department is now operating in, operated in such a political uh, fashion and manner. Uh, second, you all know about the Twitter files where we have learned that big tech, big government are colluding to keep information from we the people. Um, the most egregious example took place prior to the 2020 presidential election where they kept that information from the country just days and weeks before the most important election we have, suppressing a story and limiting Americans' free speech rights. And then finally, third, when I think about the accountability that we plan to bring to this administration, I just think in the broad sense. I mean, everything has gotten worse. In two years' time, we went from a secure border to no border. We went from safe streets to record crime. We went from stable prices to record inflation. And, of course, as I've said, we have a government that now, I believe, is targeting the very people it is supposed to serve. So we plan on, as a Republican majority, holding them accountable and dealing with what we have seen. And, again, what has been exposed from the Twitter files and, of course, what these um, 
these brave FBI agents who've come to us now as whistleblowers and told us how the Justice Department is operating and how it is not supposed to be functioning in that manner because it is supposed to be equal treatment under the law in this great country. So now you're also getting Republicans saying, hey, here are the clear differences between us and them. Here is our agenda. Here's what we're after. Ain't nothing wrong with that. Ain't nothing wrong with saying, hey, we're going to make the delineation. But it's all eyes on the State of the Union. Here's what Joe Biden's going to say. Here's what we're about. They, it, this is, of course, messaging war. And it is, it is war. It's totally war. How do you get your message out, especially when you have a media that won't actually share what it is you're saying? They only want to dismiss what you're saying or they want to silence certain parts of what you're saying. The State of the Union has got a lot of pretext. And I think the biggest one is the amount of data that shows that people don't have faith in Joe Biden and don't have faith in this administration. And if it wasn't already the economic issues and it wasn't already border issues, this balloon, this balloon has got people saying, why'd we wait? And once people are asking, of all the socioeconomic strata, of all the races and religions and sexes across the country, why'd we wait? That is a bad, bad backdrop for Joe tonight. Keep it here. I'm Tony Katz. There's a judge who is questioning whether or not the Dobbs decision, which led to the overturning of Roe v. Wade, questioning whether or not abortion is still protected by the 13th Amendment to the U.S. Constitution, even though the court ruled what the court ruled. Tony Katz, Tony Katz today, it's good to be with you. Here's the 13th Amendment, Section 1. Neither slavery nor involuntary servitude, except as a punishment for crime whereof the parties shall have been duly convicted, shall exist within the United States or any place subject to their jurisdiction. And section two, Congress shall have the power to enforce this article by appropriate legislation. So this judge is is making the argument that if you tell somebody they can't get an abortion, that's slavery... And we've abolished slavery via the 13th Amendment. So you can't outlaw abortion. Well, best of luck with that argument. I want to see what happens. Oh, I'm sorry. Was I supposed to get worked up by this? Was I supposed to scream and yell and hoot and holler? Dude, you ain't going to stop the pro-abortion folk. They are going to work aggressively to find a way. And you got to admit, man, that's a unique, unique play right there. That is unique stuff. Just like you got to know that the pro-life people are never going to stop. They aren't going to stop until there's not an abortion in the U.S. If there was one abortion in the U.S., they would still be rallying. They believe what they believe. The pro-abortion folk. They've been told their whole life that abortion is the most sacred thing in the world. The Second Amendment in the Constitution, that has to go. Abortion, not in the Constitution, nothing is more important than that. It is their religion. People don't give up their religion that easily, guys. 
They never have. They never will. It's an interesting, interesting take. Meanwhile, some words from Congressman Steve Scalise that I thought were pretty important to the idea of messaging as we wait for this State of the Union. Keep it here. I'm Tony Katz. So Congressman Steve Scalise uh, takes to the microphone. Louisiana, he's the House Majority Leader. He's the guy who got shot by the Bernie bro. Um, Just lucky to be alive today is Congressman Steve Scalise. Tony Katz, Tony Katz today. Good to be with you. Find everything, TonyKatz.Locals.com. And he goes through, it's it's a little long, but I want you to hear it. He goes through this this kind of, of laundry list of things that, the GOP is going to be doing. Here's what we're going to, here's how we see this, and here's how we're going to do that, and here's what we're going to do uh, to try and make things safer, and and oh, by the way, here's what Democrats are doing, here's what they're opposed to, we'd like for them to join us now, even though they oppose that, we'd like for them to join us on this. I want you to listen to it for yourself. Uh, in new spending that he's brought up, and to do what? Hundreds of billions of dollars President Biden borrowed to pay people not to work. Now think about paying people not to work at a time when every small business owner is looking for workers. It's not just bad spending policy to borrow from our children to pay people not to work, but President Biden's agenda of paying people not to work undermines Social Security because when he's borrowing money to pay people to sit at home, again, hundreds of billions of dollars he's borrowed to pay people not to work, those are people that aren't working who would otherwise be paying into Social Security. So President Biden's agenda has actually made Social Security less stable. We want to reverse that radical agenda. Republicans have already started getting to work, bringing forth an agenda focused on those families, fighting for the families who are struggling, to get our economy back on track, to bring energy security again, to secure America's border. In fact, we have multiple committees working on all of those items as we speak. And in the weeks ahead, you'll see bills coming to the floor to address those those problems. We've already started bringing bills to the floor to address some of those problems. In fact, a few of them have produced bipartisan votes. But I want to point out an interesting vote last week. Maria Elvira Salazar brought a resolution that should have been straightforward to everybody to reject socialism and the ills of socialism through the years and the decades Uh, the millions of people who have lost their lives to atrocities from socialism. Do you know that 100 Democrats refused to reject socialism by not voting for Maria Elvira Salazar's bill? That should tell people. And look, a lot of Democrats across this country can easily stand up and reject socialism. But I think they'd be shocked to know that Democrats in Washington, 100 of them refused to reject socialism. When we bring bill after bill to fix these problems, you see so many Democrats sitting on the sideline. We're going to give them more opportunities this week to stand up for hardworking families. In fact, when you look at crime out of control in so many communities, the District of Columbia's council passed an ordinance that dropped mandatory minimum penalties on criminals who commit violent crimes. For example, carjacking. We see carjacking and other violent crimes through the roof in D.C., and yet the council voted to get rid of those mandatory minimum sentences to let more violent criminals back out on the streets. It was so bad that the mayor of D.C. vetoed the ordinance. But the District of Columbia's council overrode that veto. 
And so now you see even more uh, lenient sentences, no minimums for violent criminals. So we're bringing a resolution to reject that action by the D.C. Council. And this is a resolution that has powerful teeth because if it passes the House and passes the Senate, only needs 51 votes to pass the Senate, it would go to Joe Biden's desk and if he signed it, that council ordinance would be reversed. I'd be curious to see what the president would do if that bill was on his desk. All we need is two Democrat senators to stand up for people who don't want to become victims of crime and say that they would vote for that bill. And by doing that, once we pass this bill through the House, if it gets through the Senate and is signed by the president, it would overturn that ordinance. There's another bill we're bringing this week, Thursday, to say that we would reverse an ordinance that the D.C. Council passed that allows illegals to vote in District of Columbia elections. In fact, the Washington Post came out against this action and said, by their estimate, 50,000 illegals would be able to vote. People at the Chinese embassy would be able to vote in D.C. elections. How ludicrous is that? And yet that's the law of the land in D.C. unless we reverse it. So we're going to bring legislation to reverse that action as well. I'm curious to see how my Democrat colleagues in the House will vote and then ultimately how the Senate will vote as well because those bills could end up on President Biden's desk to solve real problems. Now here's the question. Does that resonate? Is this an argument, a conversation of rationality that resonates? You understand what's going on here. As they get ready for the State of the Union, they're trying to put out their arguments. They're trying to put out their views. And what they're trying to do is say to the American people, by the way, that expression drives me nuts, but I haven't found a better one. Should I just say to us? They're trying to say to us? They're trying to say to the American people. I know, or we know, how the left paints us. Here's what it is we're working on. We ask you, isn't this normal? Isn't it normal to be worried about the border? Isn't it normal to be worried about crime? Isn't it normal to be worried about the economy? Look, here's what this, for example, this group of progressives did in in D.C. Shouldn't we acknowledge that this is a really bad idea? And shouldn't we, because of Congress's control of D.C., shouldn't we do something to fix that? This is rational. And if this is what's happening in D.C., should we ask, what in the world is happening in your city, in your town, in your municipality? The problem Republicans have, and we know that this problem is real, is A, they're very, very bad at delivering the message, and B, they don't have the vast majority of sources to be able to get the message delivered. They don't have it. You can argue from now until the end of time about how Fox News has the biggest ratings, and it does. But you cannot argue the long tail. I've discussed this. Allow me to to walk you through it. If you were to take Fox News' audience and say, man, that audience is the biggest, it is if you compare it by each other audience. If you were to add the totality of audiences it dwarfs the Fox audience. So this is about, for example, Amazon and book sales. The long tail is about the idea more people ordered a book that only had one order than ordered the most popular book there is. 
So if you take uh, book X and it had 10,000 orders, right? It's, it's number one seller on Amazon, 10,000 orders. I'm, I'm making up the numbers, go with me. Uh, and you said, okay, that's the number one. If you look at every other book where it only sold one copy or two copies or nine copies or 43 copies, that is a number in the hundreds of thousands. So the long tail, right? Picture uh, on a graph, it starts high up and then it scoops down like a reverse Nike swoosh and 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 it goes and it goes down like that. Shoom. Well, the long tail of media is that certainly you've got Fox News and certainly you have talk radio. And then you have ABC, NBC, CBS, MSNBC, CNN, The Washington Post, The New York Times, et cetera, et cetera, so on and so on. That long tail reaches more of an audience. They may get smaller audience bits, but they get a larger audience overall. And that's why it's so difficult, amongst the reasons it's so difficult, for Republicans to get a message out. The other part of it is, man, they're just awful at it. No creativity, no ability to to share a, a story, no ability to engage, an actual fear of speaking about these things. They're afraid. They are. It's cra- the craziest stuff in the world. I lived in Los Angeles for a good long time. I don't know. Six years is a good long time. It was a good long time. And I was surrounded by Hollywood conservatives, people who made movies, people who made content, directors and and screenwriters and and set designers, all sorts of people. And of course, everybody knows uh, the stunt people, all conservatives, because they're dealing with real life and death, all conservatives. And they would be infuriated every time they would watch the State of the Union or State of the Union rebuttal. Why don't they come to us? Why don't they come to us and let us help them stage this messaging? When the Democrats wanted to take the January 6th committee and really show America how evil Trump is, because they certainly weren't doing any work into how January 6th took place, they hired a TV showrunner, a news guy, a TV showrunner to be able to produce the thing. That's what they did. They engaged a Hollywood production of the January 6th hearings. This is, this is everything that happens. You have to be able to deliver the message in a way that people can grab it and understand it. And sometimes that has to be done with a bit of flourish. I think it should be done honestly and clearly, but it also has to be engaging. It's, it's why radio hosts, and I, and I say this about fellow radio hosts all across the country, if all you're doing is screaming and yelling and telling me about how Nancy Pelosi and Chuck Schumer suck, uh, it's, it's boring stuff. You gotta have stories, you gotta be able to share, you gotta be able to engage in another way. Not everything has to be the screaming, yelling insanity. Dear Lord, have a laugh, what's wrong with you? So Scalise is right. And Scalise is making a solid, worthy argument here. He really is. And when you hear it the way he just described it, you're like, yeah, what DC is doing is nuts. We should be Opposed to this. Rational people should be opposed to this. Now you have to go out there and share that message in other ways. You really do. So as much as they're making solid arguments in the pre to the State of the Union tonight, as much as they're making solid arguments even outside of the State of the Union conversation, 
you can't share that message well, that message doesn't get shared. And if you allow the other side to manipulate that message, you ain't got nothing. Zero. My only hope is that Republicans learn. It, it, oh, man. I mean, they're a little better. I won't lie. They're a little better. They got a long, long way to go. Keep it here. I'm Tony Katz. Of course, the State of the Union today, that's happening tonight, you know, dominating so much of the coverage today. And then the earthquake in Turkey, that death count is going to continue to go up. This thing is just more massive than we than we know. Over 5,000 people dead. That number is going to climb. Tony Katz, Tony Katz today. It's good to be with you. Just just horrifying there, Turkey, northern Syria. Because you, you realize that when, when people talk about, you know, the big one, and they talk about California, and then people joke, yeah, let it fall off into the ocean. We're cool with that. A lot of people are going to die. And even though California is built to handle these kinds of things, these areas of, of eastern Turkey, southeastern Turkey, I would argue, uh, less so in terms of their construction codes, it's going to be devastating stuff. So we're following that as well, but there are other things going on, and there are things outside of the political but are due to the political that are worthy of our attention. It was this story from money.com. Nearly a quarter of millennials rely on their parents to pay for rent. I'll I'll read it again. Nearly a quarter of millennials rely on their parents to pay for rent. Mary Cagnazola reporting that it is true 25% of millennials reported that their parents cover their rent in a poll. This was done by a group called the Chartway Credit Union. And survey data shows that there are... Millennials, who are fully grown adults, by the way, relying on their parents to cover their expenses. 2,000 adults polled between December 21st and January 3rd about financial independence and literacy. One third of all respondents admitted to having at least one bill covered by mom and dad. The top ones, rent and groceries, followed by utilities. 75% of those surveyed said they have plans to take responsibility for those costs within the next two years. 30% said they're totally happy to have their parents' financial support indefinitely. You know, I I often uh, discuss the fact that I don't understand the people who are like, I'm going to leave my money to charity and don't leave it to their children. I don't get it. I don't understand it. But I, I must always... I think balance that in the equation of I, I don't think I've raised my children uh, to be leeching scumbags. There could be a reason why a parent pays for something. So, for example, my kids have uh, cell phones. Your kids may have uh, cell phones. If I've got this family plan and they're on the family plan and they go off to college and after college I still have the phone... I don't know if I care, right? That's not me saying, oh, I have to take care of my kid's cell phone. It's on the plan. I pay the plan. I move on. What is the big deal, right? I could could have that conversation with somebody rationally and be like, oh, what? I, I, I cover it. I do the thing. It's not a problem. Buying groceries is a totally different thing. 
When my kid comes home, we're having dinner. My kid can have dinner. I'm not charging my kid for dinner. My kid takes a snack. I don't think twice about it. It would never dawn on me because if you came over to visit, I'd be like, uh, you want a snack? Oh, we're having dinner. Come eat. Like it wouldn't dawn on me. That is different than saying, hey, uh, you guys, you got to put uh, money on my card so I can get groceries. Or, you know, you need, you need to order milk for me. That's a different question, a different conversation, a different issue. Children have to be let go so they can take care of themselves and learn not only how difficult it is, but how important it is, how satisfying it is to be able to achieve the goals. And then you gotta realize that some of your goals are just too dang lofty. You're shooting for the moon and you don't have the skill set to earn what the moon costs. So you gotta bring that one down, kiddo. That's why it's so important. So I don't know if, if I, you know, in, in my examples, how, how I see it, like, is that what they're talking about? Because you might be like, yeah, you know, we have a family plan, kids on it, kids 23, you know, graduated college. I don't think that's, I don't think that's weird. But it certainly would be weird if your kid is like, oh, no, you got to pay my cell phone. If you said, hey, we're changing the cell phone bill, you got to now take care of your own cell phone. Your kid was like, why should I have to pay my cell phone bill? That's when you know you did a terrible job. You also sent your kid to possibly a university uh, that taught them nothing and hurt them tremendously. Then that's when you definitely got to cut it off. But it's really about whether or not your kids can take ownership. And we do not teach that in the main. Certainly we don't teach that culturally. That is, I agree, a massive problem. I'll put this study up at TonyCats.Locals.com. You can see it there, TonyCats.Locals.com. I'll be watching that State of the Union so you don't have to, but if you want to, feel free, and I'll be discussing it tomorrow, everyone. Take care.